With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, good morning and welcome to Cornwall Church. Whether you're watching online in Boca Raton, Skagit Valley, or right here in the house in Bellingham, it is always a privilege to be here with you. And I hope that you are excited to see what God has to say to you this morning through his word. Uh, my name is Scott. And when I was in high school, I played just one sport. It was baseball. Loved it with everything I had. It was the only sport that I played. And in all honesty, the only one I was good at. Um, and when I was at Newport High School in Bellevue, uh, all four years, we went to state. Our team was pretty good. My junior year, which was my first year on the team, the, the varsity team, um, we were supposed to be really, really strong, and we were pretty great. On a Thursday night, we were playing a team, Redmond High School, who did not have a good record. If you've played sports, you kind of could understand where this is already going. We started thinking, we already have this in the bag. Like, we're so much better than them. I think our coach was intelligent enough to kind of catch the arrogance in the room. <laughs> and he gave, he, he gave us some advice, some very coachly things, like these guys are better than they look. They're better than their record. If you expect to win, you need to play hard from the first to the last pitch. Otherwise, we're going to lose. Before the first pitch even came to pass, we were confident about the outcome. When the last pitch was thrown and the last out recorded, we were on the wrong side of 12 to 2. So not only did we lose, but we got rocked. You see, we had taken our eye off of what mattered most. And instead, we were focused on how great we thought we were. We ignored my coaches, our coaches' wisdom and that began to feel more and more prophetic as the game went on. And in turn, we had to live, out, live with the fallout that followed. Now I wonder, have you ever been in a similar situation? You took your eye off of what was most important, whether that's at work, at school, um, in a relationship, in your relationship with Christ, and you experienced the fallout that followed. 
It is so important for us to keep our focus on what matters most. And that is exactly as we read the Apostle Paul's prayer this morning, that is the heart of his prayer to the church at Ephesus is keep your eyes on what really who matters most. If you were here last week, um, Pastor Bob was unable to get to two verses that I'm really excited about because I get to use them this morning, but they basically set the backstory for what we're going to read, but they are the greatest news ever in a nutshell. Ephesians 1 verse 7 and 8 says this, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? That we have redemption through what Christ did, nothing of our own, through what Christ did, and the word that I love so much and I can never get over is lavished. He didn't just give us what we needed. He wasn't like, eh, here you go, here's a little something, something, you need this. He opens the floodgates and pours it out on us. He gives us more than we need, more than we deserve, certainly. He is so good that he lavishes his love, his grace, and his forgiveness on us. And this is the essential thing that we need to know is the backdrop before we get into Ephesians verses, or uh, chapter one, verse 15 through 23. And you can follow along in your notes here and in Skagit, or if you're online, you can turn to your page or follow, or turn to your Bible or follow along with us on the screen. But we're gonna read through the whole prayer in its entirety, and then we're gonna come back and break it down verse by verse. So Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Do you ever read Paul, whether it's a prayer or just his writing, and you're like, That's my reaction to what we just read. I was gonna say, it seems like I'm the only one in the room that's feeling that way. But it's like, the depth is absolutely amazing. If I were to summarize this in a very, very simple way, I would say that Paul is praying that the church at Ephesus and in the surrounding communities, that the church, capital C Church, would be a church that keeps her eyes focused on who matters most so that they can remain the beautiful body of Christ that they would keep their eyes focused. Now let's break this down. Verse 15, 
For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, what we acknowledge is that Paul is saying, I've heard about you. Word's gotten back to me. I heard about your faith. You heard about the the love that God lavishes. You've heard it. You've believed it. You've received it and you're living in it. I love that. That is incredible. He's heard about it. Now, Paul isn't like next door, by the way. He's a ways away. So when he hears, it means that it travels quite a distance. So it can't be average ho-hum news. It's got to be great news. And as he says, I, not only did I hear about your faith, I heard about your love for all the saints. This is an extravagant love that he's referring to. Again, is holding the door, that's a loving act. Is that going to make it all the way to Paul? I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no. He's a ways away. It's going to have to be something bigger, more vast, more sacrificial, more godly, like living in the living power of our living God. It's got to be bold. And apparently they're doing that because we have to remember that at this time, according to Acts 19, there is an uprising led by a man named Demetrius, who's a silversmith who creates idols uh, in the form of Artemis, who is the, the goddess of this area. And he creates an uprising against the followers of the way because he believes that they're going to steal the divine majesty that is due Artemis. So they, are, they have faith and they are living love in a culture of opposition. And Paul hears about it. As we continue in verse 16, we see what his response is. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's like, I am in awe. I am so excited. I am thanking God for the work that he's doing in you and through you. I thank you for the work that he created, that he started in you and the work that he's continuing to cause in you. Not only is he thanking, but he is saying, I am remembering you in my prayers. Paul is a man of prayer. As we continue in in reading his prayer, we see how frequently he prays. He has not stopped giving thanks and he constantly remembers them in their prayers that God would empower them to continue to be the beautiful body of Jesus Christ in Ephesus and in the surrounding areas. So basically what Paul is declaring in these first two verses of his prayer is you are the beautiful body. You are the beautiful body of Jesus Christ. And as he continues, he gets more specific in what he's asking God to provide for this beautiful body, the church. And what I want to just share with you is as we continue in this sermon, I'm not going to differentiate between the church in Ephesus or us today. This prayer, as we read it, it is clearly written for church past, present, and future. It is written for all followers of Jesus Christ. And so instead of differentiating, I'm just going to say us and we, which will refer to believers past, present, future. Sound good? Great. Verse 17. I keep asking. Again, I keep asking. Paul's like, I'm just always talking to God. Why? Because he knows we desperately need his help. Isn't that great? Okay, so he keeps asking that God that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give. Pause. He's acknowledging in saying that, he's acknowledging the source of everything that we need. And it's God the Father through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He is acknowledging, and may we always remember who it is that we, we receive what we need from. But what is he asking for? He's asking the glorious Father 
for the gift of the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that. In essence, he is inviting God to reveal the greatest news ever, to continue to reveal the greatest news ever to the church at Ephesus, to us. Because if we're honest, when we talk about the gospel, it's something that is foreign to us. We don't understand it. You may have received it, but you didn't receive it on your own because as a human being, it is contrary to what we know. What we know is contractual things. We function in the contractual. If you do that, then I'll do this. If you don't do that, then I won't do this. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's covenantal. It's regardless of what you do, I have and I will. And isn't that incredible news for us? I don't know about you, but I need that kind of news because I don't deserve God's love. I couldn't possibly earn it. And yet he says, I give it to you anyway. I lavish it upon you. So we need the Holy Spirit in our life because we simply can't grasp, we can't believe this news because it's so foreign to us. And if you look at John 14 and 16, what we see is um, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit is, is laid out. The Holy Spirit is to teach us the things that Jesus said, to remind us of the things that Jesus said, to convict us of the, the ways that we are living incongruently to what Jesus said. Are we catching a theme? Are you sleeping? Okay. To guide us into all truth and to reveal the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit exists to guide us into the truth, to guide us into Christ, to guide us into what he said, how he teaches, how he convicts, how he leads. That is the role of the Holy Spirit, and you and I, the church, yesterday, today, and forever, will need the role of the Holy Spirit in order to grasp and to continue to grasp the greatness of the gospel. And so Paul is praying that God, the gracious Father, the glorious Father, would provide the Holy Spirit. But what I love is this, so that. He's praying this, but the idea is that it leads to something else. And that is that you may know him better. Not that your theology is really deep and impressive to other people. Not that you can remember a bajillion verses. Not that, that you can impress people with the height of your knowledge and the depth and the width of your knowledge, but that you may know him better. And this isn't like, I know him. Yes, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's not simply our head. It's our heart and our soul as well. God doesn't want us just to know him. He wants us to know him. You know what I'm saying? Let me give you an illustration in case you're like, nope, I have no clue. Um, for some of us, we're a bit past 15 years old. If you're not, you can anticipate, like imagine getting older, but for the rest of us, you're a little bit past. So go back a few years at 15, something pretty incredible happens. You get your driver's permit and you're just like, Ooh, you're, you're stoked. And parents, you're terrified. Um, and so you get your driver's permit whenever your parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever, gives you permission, they get in the passenger seat and you start learning to drive. And this is exciting and terrifying all at the same time. And then you're starting to think like, while initially you're like, this is great. Eventually you're like, man, they don't stop like freaking out and hitting the floor like there's a break over there when there clearly isn't a break. Like, come on, get with it. Like, stop talking, stop yelling at me. You know, all these things. 
And so then you start to anticipate how sweet it's gonna be when you're 16 and they're not there. You remember this? Yeah, you anticipate and you're like, I know how rad this is gonna be. It's gonna be so good. And you know it. But when you're given the keys on the day that you get your driver's license and your parent says, have fun and be safe. You hear the have fun part, not the be safe part. And, and you back out of the driveway in your family vehicle or your first car, whatever, whatever you're just like, <gasps> and you pull away and now you know. You don't just know, but you know. For me, I knew because I was rolling in a 1984 Dodge Mini Caravan, window down. I had hair at the time, so my hair is blowing in the wind. Music act so loud that it'd make most people deaf. And it was like, this is freedom! I was more excited than you, apparently. Um, <laughs> it was awesome. And instead of just knowing it, I knew it. And that is Paul's prayer. That you don't just conceptually know God, but that you know God. That you know God. So does that mean that for us to get to really know God, that we just need to pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, yes and. Yes, we need to start with prayer. We need to pray first. We've been talking about that around here for a long time, but we need to pray first. We need to invite God to do what only God can do. And, and then we need to put ourselves in a place where the Holy Spirit can meet us, can teach us, can remind us, can convict us, can guide us, and can reveal the truth to us. Jesus Christ took 613 laws, brought them down to two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Both are action-oriented. We don't grow in our faith by sitting and doing nothing. We grow by taking action. But to be clear, who is it that grows us? Me and my work? No. It's me simply saying like, God, I am here. What a, show up, meet me, please. And we can do that in a whole lot of ways. That can be in private, like whether we're praying, whether we're reading, whether we're, we're worshiping as we drive and we're singing and we think we're in private, but really everybody is like, what? Um, and you are worshiping in private. It could be serving. You can do things in public. Like that would be being in a small group, being mentored, being in a quad, coming to church, worshiping together as the body of Christ, serving in community. It could be sharing the good news with a neighbor, a family member who doesn't know him yet. But as we put ourselves in a place for God to show up and meet us, the Holy Spirit will meet us. He will teach us, remind us, convict us, and guide us into all truth, and we will grow. We will grow in our relationship with him. I wanna read a quote that is simple but profound. It's by a guy named William Barclay. He says, the Christian life should be, should be described as getting to know God better every day. Isn't that incredible? Getting to know God better every day. A friendship which does not grow closer with the years tends to vanish with the years. And so it is with us and God. If we want to remain the beautiful body of Jesus Christ, we must continue to get to know him, know him better every day. Let's continue in this verse 18, 
I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that. That seems to infer that there is a reason to be enlightened, which means there's some form of darkness. But what is that about? Matthew 15, 19 helps us understand a little bit better. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Ever since Adam and Eve were were tempted and deceived in the garden and they gave in, sin entered the world and every single human being has been affected by sin since. And what that means is that there is darkness in our heart. Throughout the pages of scripture, there is um, an ongoing contrasting of light and dark. Light is God, dark is the devil. Light is love, dark is hatred. Light is joy, dark is despair. And it goes on and on and on and on. And what Paul is saying is that we have darkness in our heart. But as you continue to read the Bible, what we see and what Paul is inferring is that there is still hope. Matthew 4, 16, quoting um, Isaiah 9, 2, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Even if you're living in darkness, even if you don't know God and you're confused, your thinking is veiled, what he's saying is there is a light coming and that light is going to bring life as we read in John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world And he is the light of life. As we live in the light, he pushes back the darkness that leads to death and destruction, hurt and remorse. And he leads us into a rich and meaningful and beautiful life. And then lastly, 1 John 1, 5. In this message, we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. There is no darkness in him and we have darkness in our heart and yet there is a God that when we invite him to push back the darkness, he has the ability because he's the light of the world to push back any darkness and deceit that is in our heart in order that, in order that what? That you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What this is saying is that the darkness confuses us. The darkness, if it's not pushed back by the light, by truth, what it does is it, it leads us to believe that the hope isn't actually for, for us, that the hope is inadequate, or that the, the inheritance that is promised, like surely that doesn't relate to me, surely I don't benefit from that. And yet that is absolutely not true. That is the deceit of the enemy, the devil. And instead when we say, Jesus, light of the world, come and push back and replace that deceit with truth, he does. And then we can proclaim, we can stand in and proclaim this incredible hope that is both relevant now and eternally. We can claim these inheritances that we have both now and eternally. And we have so many amazing gifts through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolutely incredible. Let me share a story with you from the Old Testament. These guys didn't even know Jesus, but they were absolutely confident in their hope that they had in the relationship with God the Father. Some of you may be familiar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter three. It is amazing. If you're like, never read it, 
Check it out. It's good. Um, Daniel chapter 3, Jerusalem has been conquered, and some Israelites have been exiled to Babylon. Babylon. I almost said Babylonia, but Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he is oppressing them. He is the leader, and as a king in the day, he can do whatever he wants to whoever he wants, whyever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants. You get the idea. And he creates this statue, and he was like, he says to everybody in his land, bend a knee or burn. Pretty dramatic, I'd say. Bend a knee, worship this idol, or burn, is in essence what he's saying. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, we'll pass. Nope. <laughs> Which is pretty courageous. Word gets back to him. He has these three guys brought to him, and he's like, we're going to give this a go, because we're going to do, I'm going to give you another shot, because clearly you didn't grasp the gravity of the situation. You're going to worship this idol, or I'm going to put you in a furnace that's really, really hot, and you're going to burn to death. And they're like, nope. And what I love is they speak to him with respect. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is the one true God, and that God is gonna save us, which is like, ooh. But then what I love is what they say next, and this communicates the incredible hope that they have. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. That communicates that there is an absolute confidence of the hope that they have both in the present, but certainly in the eternal. And they say, we will not worship a foreign God. We refuse. And if you're like, what happens next? It's awesome. Check it out, Daniel chapter three. Um, Cliffhanger. Um, it is absolutely amazing. If you and I, if the church, the capital C church is to remain the beautiful body, we must constantly invite the light of life to dispel the darkness in our hearts, to expose the darkness that we don't even see is darkness in our hearts because the enemy deceives and is super, super tricky. Let's continue, verses 19 through 21. And his incomparably, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. This is proclaiming Jesus as sovereign. There is nothing, there is no one who is above his authority. He is powerful over anything and anyone. He has the ultimate authority. He is sovereign. And what he says that baffles me so much, one of those incredible riches that we have in a relationship with him is when we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and we have said that with our mouth, that we, that his incomparably great power is made available for you and I. This last week, we received a box from Amazon. I'm sure you've never experienced that. And um, this box contained new springs for our trampoline. And the reason is the old ones were getting rusty and actually starting to snap. So we value safety at our house. So we replaced them. Um, 
And so I come home from work and my daughter, Sydney, who's 12, and my son, Hunter, who's 10, they're out there working. And really what I mean by that is Sydney's working and Hunter's supervising. And um, so Sydney is, there's this tool to pull on the spring to get it into place. And she's pulling and shaking and pulling and shaking. And I'm like, would you like help? Hunter's like, yep, she does. <laughs> like, dude, I didn't ask you. And he's like, what? She does. And I said, Sydney, would you like help? And she said, nope. And so I was like, okay. So I just hung out and watched and she continued to, and do you want help now? Nope. Okay. I love her autonomy and her desire for independence to try to figure this thing out on her own, to not just rely on dad who she knows is capable of doing what she was struggling with, with more ease. What I don't understand is when the God of the universe says, Scott, do you want help? And I'm like, nope, I got this. I wanna do this on my own. You ever done that? What are we doing? What are we doing? The all-powerful, all-knowing God who created with words didn't even need tools, just words. He created everything. He's like, you want my help? No, 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 not yet, I got it. This is the God who has enough power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is the God whose power is so sufficient that it allows us to meet, experience, and understand the love of a savior, that his power is so great that he forgives us and breaks bondage to sin for us. This is the God whose power is so great that he can transform lives entirely. And we're like, no, no, no. I got this. If you're anything like me and you've done that, which I'm not, proud in a, I'm not proud in saying, I do that all too often. I still do that. And it's like, what am I doing? I inevitably end up on my face and like, oh, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> Great choice. And that God of the universe, because of his grace, because of his love, because he lavishes it on us relentlessly, he continues to say, I'm here. Do you want my help? but he waits, he waits. May we be a church that says, yes, yes, I want your help. Yes, I want your help to give me the strength, the, the power I need to tell the truth when I'm tempted to embellish, to make myself look good. I need your power to give me the strength I need to step into a difficult conversation that I am terrified in how it's gonna go because it's with somebody that I absolutely care about. I need your power to help me find peace, to provide peace amidst the ongoing unsuccessful, unsuccessful search for a job. I need your power to help me admit that I need others' help because I am addicted. I need your power to help me share Christ with people that I think are absolutely opposed to hearing about Christ. And I love them so much. Jesus, I need your power to continue to hope in the midst of amazing pain and loss, persecution, or the effects of a disease that I have. I need your power. What Paul is acknowledging is that we can live 
an okay life on our own. But God has so much more in store. And he says, it is impossible for you to live into that life, which isn't gonna be all easy and all good. Let's just be clear. But to live into that, to experience that, to experience the richness of that life, the adventure of that life, you cannot do it apart from my strength. But I am freely offering you that strength. Will you say yes? For us to remain the beautiful body of Christ, we must depend on our great and powerful God every moment of every day. And when he says, do you want help? You bet I do. <laughs> Come on in. 22 and 23. And, the, and God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This continues to proclaim the sovereignty, the vastness, the significance, the hugeness of our God. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful, and he is always with us. There is nowhere we can go from his presence. This is proclaiming that. It is also stating he is the head of the body of Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a part of that body. You maybe are like, I feel woefully inadequate. Welcome to the party. We all do, but we are glad that you are here, and together we make the church. The global church is the capital C church. And he's like, don't forget who the head is, because I don't know if you know this or not, but you and I without a head doesn't go well. And the church really doesn't go well if Jesus Christ is not the head. It is the head who gives us life. It is the head who gives us strength. It is the head who guides us and leads us in how it is we can live in a way that brings his beauty into this world, that shares the hope of Christ with more and more and more people. We must remain connected to the head. But let me say this, there is something that Paul says. There is something that Paul says, and it is shocking to me. And it's right here. To be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. He is saying that the body of Christ, to be clear, that's you and I and believers around the world, that we have the fullness of God, which I'm like, whoa, hold up. Like, I know God is full. I know Jesus is full. Me? Like, I know myself. I know my thoughts. I know my actions. I know my words. Like, surely that can't be true of me. Let's read a couple verses to help take us off the ledge here a little bit. John 1:16. From the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in the church, or for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. The deity, the, the fullness of God the Father dwelled perfectly in God the Son, who is both fully God, fully man. And somehow, I don't understand it, not gonna pretend I get it, he imparts that to us. We are the reflection of God. To our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our school, our classmates, our professors, our bosses, 
our teammates. We are the reflection of God. And according to this, we are given fullness. Now, one thing I want to point here is Jesus is the one who fills everything in every way. Going back, sorry, back to that other verse. Jesus fills everything in every way. May we not forget that. There is no one and nothing other than Christ who will fill you in every way. No one. You will always be disappointed. I will always be disappointed. But in Christ, we can find fullness. We can find satisfaction. But may we acknowledge the weight of what this is saying, that we are the fullness of God. And to me, what that means is that as we are the reflection of Christ in this life that has incredible beauty, as well as incredible pain, that when we live well for Jesus, more and more people may come to know the goodness of the love that he freely lavishes on them. And when we don't, we hear more stories of people who say, I might be open to Christ if it wasn't for him or for what that lady said or for the experience that I had in church. The weight is eternal. And Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, to you and I today, you are the body of Christ. In order for you to remain the beautiful body of Christ, you must remain connected and submitted to the head, to Jesus himself. And when we do that, he empowers us to share his love and his life with everyone. And it's incredible. Let me give a quick recap. Um, Paul does something interesting. I don't know if you noticed this. Sometimes maybe you've prayed for somebody and you're like, hey, I prayed for you yesterday. That's super cool. Do that. How many times have you said that and like, oh, and here's what I prayed. And you hand them your prayer that you prayed. You, we don't, I've never experienced that. We don't do that commonly. And that is exactly what Paul does. He prays this prayer in private. He writes it down and he gives it to them. Why? Because they are the beautiful body that he wants to pray to continue to remain the beautiful body, but he knows that the road is tough, and so he needs to provide a roadmap for them. And so through his prayer, he does that. He teaches them, you really need to know God through the Holy Spirit, that you need to constantly invite, the, this, or to invite Jesus Christ into your heart to push back any darkness, any deception, so that you can receive hope and the inheritance, that you can believe that is truth, that you would continue to depend on the power power of God rather than on your own strength and that you would remain connected to and submitted to the head of the body. Coming back to the beginning, I talked about a game that I played in high school and how our team took our eye off what mattered most. And we focused on our greatness on our, and, and became arrogant in that and lost the game, we lost our way, and somehow the church at Ephesus became prey to that same thing. You may be familiar in Revelation 2, verses four and five, we read a rebuke of the church at Ephesus. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I just wonder, I don't know this, I wonder 
Are the things that they did at first, the things that we read about or that were being referred to in verses 15 and 16 of Paul's prayer, but from that moment to the moment that this letter landed in front of them, that they had lost their first love. They took their eye off who mattered most. At Cornwall Church, may this not be true of us. But let's be honest, we are no better than them. Much like they were human beings, we are human beings, and all human beings have a propensity to drift away from God. And Paul's prayer is the affirmation, you can be a beautiful church. To do that, you must, you must pray. So at Cornwall Church, may we be a church that is known for our faith, that is known for our sacrificial love as we keep our eyes set on our heavenly father. And may we do that through two ways in particular. One is that we would pray as Paul prayed, literally open the Bible and just pray his prayer. It's pretty stinking good if you weren't convinced yet. It's amazingly deep. Pray that prayer. Pray it for the capital C church. Pray it for Cornwall Church and Bellingham and in Skagit. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your small group. But pray it that invites the Holy Spirit of God to work in us and to do a new thing in us that draws us back to God again and again and again and grows our knowledge, our deep knowledge of who our God is. So may we pray. You might have heard this phrase around here, pray first. We mean it. We mean it. Pray first in all things covered in prayer. God is good. Paul did it. We're just following his example. If you're like, where does that even come from? It's biblical. It's Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, so he must be pretty legit. Um, anyway, the second thing is may we put ourselves in a position for the Holy Spirit of God to meet us regularly. May we live in a way, may we actively live, whether that's in private or in public, in a way that we say, God, would you meet us? Holy Spirit, would you meet us? Would you teach us the truth? Would you remind us the truth? When you can, will you convict us when we are living outside the truth? Will you reveal the truth? to us, that we would constantly be reminding ourselves to put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit of God can meet us and grow us. If we do those things, we will remain a beautiful body that proclaims the life-saving message, the greatest news that this world will ever know of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection, and the love that he so freely lavishes on everybody. Everybody.